0: We're going to be in Isaiah 42 this morning, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench
1: Just a handful of years ago, I had my first driver's ed class. And a part of that class was teaching new students what may not come as obvious to them. It's obvious to look out the windshield if you're driving into that space in front of you. You kinda wanna know what's there. And it may be even fairly obvious that as you're going around a curve, you should be kind of looking as far as you can around that curve and the car just kinda goes there. What's not as obvious is that you need to know what's going on beside you and especially behind you. And so one of the tests that we had was this little red light that the driver's ed teacher put in the back window and randomly he would just turn that red light on and you had three seconds to say light or I see it. And then he would turn it back off and wait a while and you usually do it like right while you're doing something else like turning and he turned that little light on. And uh, this is not what my sermon's about, but just, just a free tip. You are a safer and better driver if you know what's going on all around you, both in front of you and behind you. And I share that because that's a way that I think about this current season that we've just entered into today called Advent, because during Advent, we're invited to do what we typically do, which is looking forward, but we're also invited to look backward, Theologians say that we are in this in-between time, or they call it sometimes the already and the not yet, meaning Jesus has already come. He came to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, to rise from the dead, to essentially accomplish everything necessary for our salvation, and then he went away for we don't know how long. But the Bible says he not only came once, he's coming again and we look forward to that time where he comes and makes all things new and finishes and completes and completely fills up our salvation that's already won for us. So we're remembering what's behind us. We're anticipating what's still in front of us and that's this beautiful season of Advent. What I want to do for you this morning is I'm going to kind of overview a little bit more about Advent, if this is new to you, or I, I think it's just, as I went through it again this week, just an amazing reminder of what the key themes of this season are and why we choose those themes. Then I want to drill down into the first of those four themes, and then I want to just walk you through some hopefully very practical application of how do you do what we talked about this morning. So overview, as I said, we're in this in-between time, okay? Okay. We're in between the first and the second coming of Christ. That's one of the themes. We're here, this present moment. Don't just focus, as we often do, on literally just the next step or just today and have this very short-term memory, but also very short-term vision. Look big as a follower of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, learn to look big into what God has done long before you entered the picture and will continue to do forever, okay? That's one of the themes. Uh, Another core theme is this overarching idea of darkness and light. And we read some scriptures already this morning. We sang some songs about this already this morning. And the darkness part may be obvious that Jesus was born into the Northern Hemisphere, and in the Northern hemisphere, the days are shorter in the winter and it's colder and it's darker. That, that, that part's probably obvious, but there's also light. And it's not a yin and yang kind of light where there's like, there's darkness and there's light and they kind of balance each other out. No, the beauty of light. So we've lit this first advent candle this morning. The beauty of light is when light and darkness are in the same space, the light always wins the light overcomes the darkness. It's not a a confusing thing of like, well, you have light and darkness, you have this struggle of good and evil, or however you want to think about it. Like, it's kind of up for grabs on who wins. No, the light wins. The light has come. So that light is one of the first themes of Advent. If you don't know, Jesus entered the world at a very dark time, historically speaking. And he came as a Jew he was first known as the Messiah of the Jews, the King of the Jews. And during this period of time, the Jews were a chastened people. They had, they had lived under the judgment of God because many, many, many generations had rejected Yahweh as their God. They said, like, we want the gods of the nations around us. We want kings like they have. We want earthly kings. We want earthly judges. We don't want God to rule over us. And so they were chastened. Many of them were deported to other many multiple nations that had attacked them and ransacked their city, Jerusalem, over and over again. For over 400 years, there had been no new prophetic word from God. God felt like he was a million miles away. It was dark. It was cold. It was barren. All those things that darkness represents were present amongst the Jewish people, living as essentially slaves of the Roman Empire, serving King Caesar, and then the light came, and it started to spread, and the gospel is presented. So this, I don't mean as a shallow application at all. I would say during this season, hang the lights. Light the lights. Put the fire in the fireplace and the fire pit, and think about as you look at the tree or you look into the fireplace, that light is a symbol of God coming and winning and overcoming. By the way, the word advent simply means arrival or appearing, okay? So we're talking through this whole season about the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah. Now, these candles that are in front of me here represent the other four traditional themes of Advent. And there's a little bit of variation from one church kind of culture and tradition and background to another. But generally, they represent the one that's lit this morning is hope, and then peace, and then joy, and then love. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll light a white, larger candle known as the Christ candle. But these are the four themes of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and love. In each of these Sundays, we're going to look at one of these themes, and we're going to look at how that in Christ overcomes the darkness. So this morning, hope overcomes the darkness. So we're talking about hope this morning, okay? And I want us to turn our attention there for the next few minutes. So starting with the definition of hope, what is hope? And how do you use that word kind of colloquially? I think how we think about hope, how we tend to use that word, Um, like when our family got up this morning at 4.45 to go to a hockey game against Boulder, I was thinking, I hope my kid wins. I hope that my team wins against his team this afternoon. (laughs) We say, "I I, I hope. I hope I get into this college. I hope that I get this job upon graduation. I hope that I get the promotion. I hope that I get a raise. I hope that... The, the medical test is positive. I hope that my kids turn out all right. And, and what we're often meaning when we say, I hope, I hope, I hope, is this kind of wish. I wish this were true. I want this to be true, but I'm not sure that it will be. But do you know that biblical hope is much, much more than wishful thinking. It's much more than how we typically use the word hope. The word hope in scripture is actually a confident expectation, a confident expectation of something that God has promised. And we're looking at God's character. We're listening to God's promises. We're saying, you are this way and you said you would do this. And I believe with all my heart, it's like I know into the future that this thing will be true. So when we're commanded throughout Scripture to hope in God, it's not some kind of Hail Mary pass, like, well, you believe in that, and you believe in that, and you believe in that, but I believe in God, and I I hope I'm right. No, it's a call to fix your confidence in God, to study God, to know God, to draw near to God and say, I have a confident expectation that God will absolutely come through for me in all the ways that He has promised to, including my forever salvation. Now, I had Maddie read for us this morning Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. I want to take a few minutes to unpack um, five things that are in parallel in this text this morning. I realize the word hope isn't here, but the word waiting is. The nations, the coastlands, wait for the Lord to come and do these things. And the idea of trusting God to show up And do what he promised is there. So that's really the idea of hope. And I want to walk through this with three simple questions. Number one, why is it so hard to have hope? Number two, what is our reason for hope? And number three, how can you practice hope tomorrow? Okay, so why is it so hard to have hope? And I think the simple answer is because that's not where we live. And if I just start with myself, and I want you to picture you starting with yourself and just drawing Bigger and bigger concentric circles. So it's me, then it's me and my neighborhood, or me, me and my family and closest friends, neighborhood, city, state, nation, world. And if we start thinking of each of those rings as containing difficult things, conflict, war, broken relationships, broken bodies, broken minds, broken emotions... Well, we're typically not super optimistic and positive about the future because we live in the reality of all that conflict and brokenness. And this is one of the reasons I love the Word of God, by the way. When we open the Bible, we're not reading a series of whitewashed stories with this Pollyannish hope of just like, well, everything's going swimmingly for Abraham and Noah and David and the woman at the well and the woman with the issue of blood and Mary and the other Mary and Peter and John, things are going badly for them. And the scripture just re- presents to us the real problems of real people and gives them hope and gives us hope. Okay, so right here in Isaiah 42, why, why is it so hard to hope? Why was it hard for them to hope in the context of Isaiah preaching this? Because the people who are trying to follow God are looking around and they're not seeing much reason to hope. They're like, I see injustice, I see weariness, I see cultural blindness, I see bondage. And those things feel pretty relatable right now as we ourselves experience themes of injustice, brokenness, cultural blindness. How can you not see this? Bondage to sin and addiction and death. I think one of the reasons that we don't experience hope from day to day is because our our present experience, and especially if it's painful, is more real to us than all the other truth. It's not that you would say, if I sat you down, so you don't believe that God is this way? You don't believe the promises of God? I think you'd be like, well, no, I, I believe that that's true. But the conflict of today, the pain of today, the heartache and the brokenness of today leave me feeling helpless and hopeless and despondent and frustrated. And you may find that that's true for you too. Just the day-to-day anxiety, stress, frustration, this didn't meet my expectations seems more real to you than God. So point two, what is our reason for hope? And I want to look at let's just walk through this. Verse 1, notice Isaiah the prophet is quoting the Lord here. So he's quoting Yahweh, and God is speaking, and when God speaks, he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now we're going to find out later in this book of Isaiah that this servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ. It's the coming Messiah, okay? And so God is telling us in advance. When he comes, this is what the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, this is what he's going to be like. This is what he's going to do for you. So, what does that show us about hope in particular? Well, first of all, I want you to notice we have hope because Jesus is just. Just. Verse one, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. Verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all the earth. Now we know, and one of the reasons that we are discouraged and despondent and sometimes hopeless and feel helpless is because down here, might makes right. Down here, very often, you can look at something and say the truth is so obvious. We've literally had situations where it's like this judge or this jury will see the truth is obvious, and then the judge is like, "Well." I'm ruling out this whole area of truth that I'm not even going to let you present in court. I don't even want the jury to hear that truth. It's like, well, how are they supposed to arrive at a just decision if they don't have all this truth? Well, just trust me. And we're like, well, we don't. Because might makes right. Because a lot of things, good people are punished for the wrongs of others, and very often the people doing the harmful things are let free. And you don't have to think about our entire justices. You can just think about your own life and think like this situation in my family life. And some of you had some of these dramatic moments over the last couple of days getting together with extended family. And you're like, even the situation with my family is not fair. This situation at my work is not fair. It's not just that I do the work and pull the long nights and someone else shows up and takes credit and gets the reward and gets the promotion and like everyone knows that was me and it's not just, it's not fair. You can brought into our city right now. Just look at some things going on and say, this is not right. This is, if you, if you held certain outcomes up to a, an objective standard, you would say the standard is straight, but the justice we experience is crooked. Hear the word of the Lord, Jesus came and Jesus will come again to bring justice. And I find great hope in this because if you're ever sitting back thinking, does does no one see what's true? Does no one care what's right? God tells us of his son, he cares. He will come in justice. He will come in justice for your individual life, for your relationships, for our city, for our state, for our nation, for our world. The one who sees and knows everything will come one day to set everything right. The Bible says he's coming again as a perfectly wise and righteous judge and he's gonna settle every score, not with some moody, subjective, angry vindication, but with a settled calm and an all-knowing justice. And I love that we can look back to the first advent and see Jesus going around seeking truth, seeking justice on behalf of the marginalized, seeking justice on behalf of people who weren't getting justice while suffering great injustice himself, to take all of that injustice on himself so that one day he can make everything right. We have hope because Jesus is and will be just. Number two, we have hope because Jesus is merciful. Look with me at verses two and three. It says, he, this is still talking about the servant, still talking about Jesus, will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick will he will not quench. Now I love these two metaphors here. You can picture a bruised reed, okay? Um, the bruised reed I always think about is my yearly trip to uh, the the greenhouse to get all my plantings for herbs and vegetables and stuff to put in the garden. And I pile it all in the back seat. And when I get home, inevitably one of those bright green little tender shoots, something's fallen over on it and crushed it. And instead of being that bright green, vigorous, just straight thing, it's a darker green and it's gone limp at that point. And that's a bruised reed. It's not dead. But it's struggling. The faintly burning wick, I mean, you can even picture it on a candle, for instance, because you've all seen this. It's maybe, maybe a certain wick on an oil lamp is no longer getting proper oil. The oil is about to run out, or the wax that's feeding it is about to run out. Or maybe as, as every wedding I attend, there's, there's a stiff breeze outside that day, and you're all watching that thing, and you're like, oh no, the, the unity candle's gonna go out you know, and hopefully that's not a metaphor for this marriage or anything, but that is, that is a faintly burning wick right now. And the picture of this mercy of Jesus, it says, Jesus is careful with people like that. That person who's like, I am bent, but not dead, not broken, but I've gone limp. I've lost my vigor. I'm exhausted emotionally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, my, my mind's not in a good place, I know I'm, I'm, I'm beat up, I'm burnt out, I got nothing left in the tank. And the father tells us, my son, when he comes, is going to be careful with people like that. He's going to be merciful with people like that. He's going to make space for people like that. And when he comes again at the end of time as we know it, Jesus will continue to be merciful who are like, God, the only thing I held on to was you because life was full of pain and I felt bent over and worn out and exhausted so much of the time that I wasn't sure I was gonna be able to keep bearing fruit. But you were patient with me. You were merciful with me. We have hope because Jesus is merciful. He cares about you with tenderness. Thirdly, we have hope because Jesus is sovereign. Verses 5 and 6. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And then it goes on, jump to verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And what's he saying? He's saying, My son who comes, he's the creator. He is the giver of life, he is the sustainer of life. All glory and weight and honor and power belong to him alone. And a word we use for that is he's sovereign. He's in control over everything. God is looking down and it's like these, these carved images are just that, they are carved idols. They are powerless. They don't have his glory. They can't answer to you, but because he is God and because he is in control, he can't answer. I mentioned earlier the injustice situation, but imagine that you're walking into a courtroom with an advocate, with an attorney, who not just that he's never lost, it's that he can't lose. And having that kind of confidence that he's sovereign. So he he knows what's gonna happen in this courtroom before he ever speaks. He's only gonna speak the truth, he's only gonna speak justice. But, but I win because that's my advocate that's in control of this entire thing. And, you know, I think a lot of times if I look at my personal life, and many of you will relate, I lose hope, and you probably lose hope because we lose control. We lose control. See, when I feel like I control a situation, it's like, I, I got it under control, okay, Well, I'm not hopeless about that if I feel like I got it under control. But if something spirals on me and it's like, I can no longer control that. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not true. That's not kind. That wasn't loving, but I have no control over it. I feel hopeless because I don't have control. What if you know the one who does have control? And instead of putting your hope in your control of the situation, you put hope in his control of the situation, the one who made us, the one who sustains us, the one who has all glory and honor and power. And you see this in the first advent when Jesus comes, just as, as man, fully man and fully God. That's a guy who knew he was in control. And when he confronts disease and demons and death, he's not like, well, I don't know what's going to happen either, but let's give this a shot. Hocus pocus, pray a prayer. No, he's like, demons be gone, disease be gone, Lazarus come out. I'm in control of the situation. And family, we have an opportunity to hope in that Jesus who every time we don't have control, he's like, I have control. You can, you can trust me. I'm still good here, okay? We have hope because Jesus is sovereign. Fourthly, we have hope because Jesus is faithful. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, I I called you in the first place. I wasn't confused about who you were, your backstory, your history, what was going to happen in your life. I wasn't confused about any of that when I called you in the first place. So don't think I will ever let you go. I'm walking through this life with you. I'm doing it with you. I'm by your side, faithfully present with you to protect you, to be for you. Okay, that's one kind of hope. Now look at a second, verse, verse nine, another kind of faithfulness here. He says, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And what's that about? Well, God's saying, I and the servant know the future. And you know all that stuff that I said would happen way back here and now you've seen it come to pass? I'm telling you new stuff that you haven't seen yet And you can trust me to be faithful that if I tell you, this is what's going to happen in this situation, or this is is what I'm going to do for you. This is who I'm going to be for you. I'm absolutely faithful to carry my word forth in your life. So you can trust me to be with you. You can trust me to be for you. You can trust me to do what I said I would do. You can trust me to act in a way that's consistent with my own character revealed to you. God is faithful. I think another thing that makes me hopeless and probably you is that you get into a relationship with someone who's terribly unreliable. They keep saying they'll do something or they'll hit a certain deadline or they'll help you on a project and they're always dropping their piece of it and you feel helpless. You're like, oh, what am I supposed to do? I can never rely on you to do what you say you're going to do. What if you have one that every time he speaks, you're like, you'll be with me. You'll do what you said. We have hope. Then finally, here in this text, we have hope because Jesus is Savior. Verses 6 and 7, I will give you. Remember, this is the Father. This is Yahweh speaking to the servant. Jesus, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Uh, by, By the way, if I pause there, a covenant is... Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not just an agreement of like, if you do this, then I'll do this. And if I do this, then you should probably do that. We break contracts all the time, or we tear them up, we rewrite them, we amend them. Uh, a covenant is an unbreakable agreement. So that faithfulness theme again, but go on. I will give you, Jesus, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison house, those who sit in darkness. And you see this theme of darkness and light again. That He's not like, I'm bringing light. I hope it goes well. I don't know. There's a lot of darkness. He's like, no, when I bring the light, the darkness is over. The darkness runs from the true light of the world. And you think of all the things then that are running. Darkness symbolizes what? Ignorance, fear, doubt, disease, death. Anxiety, bondage, it symbolizes a ton of things. And then light is the opposite. It's like Jesus is coming with, with hope, with healing, with truth, with beauty, with power, with life. But look at this theme of bondage. Bondage. People that are blind are into a certain kind of bondage. People who are prisoners are in another kind of bondage. I think we'd be wise to say, you know, what are some of the things that blind me to reality? And by by blind, I don't mean that you don't see it at all. But again, you can think of those blinders as like the conflict and pain in my life right now is more real to me than everything else because something is closing that off like blinders. And, And Jesus is saying, like, when I come I'm liberating you from those blinders. I'm I'm opening your eyes so you can see the full picture. Yes, the negative things are true, and also, and also a lot of things. Think about what your chains are, chains of idolatry, chains of addiction, chains of maybe the fear of death or death itself, of just like, I'm I'm in bondage to this, I'm in captivity to those things. How do I break free from things that are more powerful than I am? And the answer that God the Father gives us is when I send my servant, you can hope in his strength to break the chains, to open the doors, to enlighten your eyes. You don't have to trust in your own strength. And I want you to just now look at these five layers that I just gave you. And you're, you're looking now at, so when Jesus came the first time, He came in justice. He came in mercy. He came in sovereignty. He came in faithfulness. He came as Savior. And when he comes again, he will come in perfect, full justice, perfect, full mercy, perfect, full sovereignty, perfect, full faithfulness, and he will fully save, the Bible says, to the uttermost, all those who put their hope in him. And I see in those attributes that I just listed, if I were just summarizing them And I think this is important. I see a God in in Jesus who came. I see a God who's both good and great. And that's important. Because if you have a God who is only good, You might feel the faithfulness side, like, oh, he'll always be there for me. He'll walk me through this. He won't leave me or forsake me. There's nothing I could do that get him to turn his back on me. And you're like, but what about the chains? And he's like, well, I I can't do anything about the chains. Can't do anything about the death. Uh, But I'll be with you in the meantime. On on the flip side, if you have a God who is only great, all-powerful, You may see that sovereignty, but the sovereignty may actually be something that you fear, that you tremble before in awe and terror of, like, I know you're great. I know you're all powerful, but are you with me? Are you for me? I don't know. Or maybe no. And the fact that the Father says, when the servant comes, he'll be good and he'll be great. And when he comes again, He'll be perfectly, infinitely good and perfectly, infinitely great. That's a God we can hope in. Because it it says like he cares deeply about your anxieties and your frustrations. The things that are bringing you stress and that feeling or that reality of helplessness and hopelessness in your life right now, you're putting your faith in one who's like, "I, I got that and I'm with you. And I'm for you as an advocate who can't lose. Now, I want to end this morning with a few just very, I hope, practical applications, okay? So if you're like, that was theoretical, and it wasn't meant to be totally theoretical, it's historical, it's real, but how can you practice hope tomorrow? First of all, identify what causes you to be or feel Hopeless. See, when you get hopeless, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about my life and people that I know dearly, people that are close to me, I think they have a similar experience. When you start feeling hopeless about something, you ever feel like that despondency, that hopelessness, that helplessness becomes your total experience? And suddenly it feels like, it's not like that thing is hopeless. It's like everything is hopeless. Everyone's against me. Nothing's going right. I can't change anything. And hopelessness is a snowball. And just as it's rolling down the hill in your heart and your emotions and your reactions, you feel like it's kept, it's just picking up more and more of your life. And you're like, everything is hopeless. Everything is hopeless. And friends, that's just probably not true. It's probably not true that everything in your life is hopeless or helpless. So I say, what's actually causing you that feeling or that reality of hopelessness? And I I listed some things, okay? Do you know, and there's a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of studies of this, if you love scrolling social media, and I don't care what the social media is, and I do it too, I'm not, this is not a rant against social media, but all the studies show scrolling social media brings a tremendous amount of hopelessness and despair to most people. And you may relate to that because you see like, man, here I am by myself tonight, again, not on a date, thank you world. And she's on a date and he's on a date and they're on a date and everyone's getting married and everyone's having kids and you keep scrolling and I, I'm, everyone's got a better job than me. Everyone's got be- better makeup and hair than me. Her shoes are fantastic. Mine are not. And you just, you, you start doing this comparison thing, which is the enemy of hope. And you just, you also feel like just like everything is, is going bad around me. I think another way we can do this is like, let's just be honest. Some of you can consume too much news, okay? Because I'll, I'll just, spoiler alert, there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there, okay? And if you're like, I got to know all of it every day, i got to have the local, the city, the state, the national, the international, what's going on in Gaza right now and Ukraine. And I'm not saying don't look at that stuff, pray for that stuff, be aware of that stuff. But do you ever feel like you're just scrolling and scrolling and reading the news and you're like, everything's terrible and now I feel hopeless. Maybe that's doing it to you. Um, Do you know how you treat your body? Could be making you hopeless. Again, tons and tons of studies. I'm not a doctor, but I've... I've read reports, the way you're eating and drinking can make you feel hopeless. The way you're sleeping or not sleeping can make you feel hopeless. The way you're not exercising can make you feel hopeless. I think you'd be wise to just be aware of like, the body keeps score. And if I'm trashing this temple, I feel more exhausted, more on edge, more helpless, more hopeless, more anxious, more despondent. Um, do you know that when your responsibilities start to pile up on you and you choose to respond to that mounting list of things to do, you respond to that with taking yet another day off and being lazy? There's a tons of studies in the therapy world that say, you're making yourself more hopeless. Sometimes the best thing to do is just be like, I am hopeless right now, but the next right thing that I can do right now is get out of bed and brush my teeth and make my bed and do the next right thing and the next right thing. And no, you won't feel it sometimes, but instead of letting that hopelessness pile up on you by making a bigger pile of things that you're not doing that you should, in faith, in confidence in God, take that next little baby step of doing something that honors Him. Do you know that giving too much power to certain voices in your life can make you hopeless? Some of you are listening to people, and I mean people as either individuals or people as categories, that by giving them so much weight in your life, Because they're the decisive validator. If you have their approval, you feel like you're on top of the world. And if you don't, you feel like trash. You've given people way too much power in your life to make you feel hopeless. And I'm not saying just like, well, cut cut off all toxic people. um, Because that's not the way of Jesus. But you don't have to give them the power in your life that you give them. And on the flip side of that, not spending enough time with good people family, friends, people that you're investing in, people that invest in you. That can make you feel hopeless, okay? You you can add to this list, but I want you to say, hopelessness is not a totalizing experience. Identify what causes you to be or feel hopeless and say, that's what it is. Now, step two, and you can do this simultaneously. There's not necessarily sequential. Learn to hold pain and hope side by side. So, Do you know Christianity does not say, deny the painful thing. It's not like you're going to go through this awesome life. If you just trust in God, everything's going to flip for you. And it's going to be incredible and awesome. And you're sitting there like, well, everything's not incredible or awesome. So I guess I don't have enough faith like the other people. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, brothers and sisters, your life will be filled with conflict and pain in this broken world. And that's not supposed to make you feel better. It's supposed that God is real with us. And so when you're like God said there would be pain. He said there would be persecution. He said there would be conflict. He said there would be hard things until I'm home. And here's one of those things. And I acknowledge that God, this is really painful. And you may be like this this conflict that just continues on with my parents or a sibling or an old friend or coworker is really painful this getting passed over for promotions or even encouragement is really painful. I'm saying you can, you can name that thing in your life, but hold that pain together with the hope. And that, that could sound something like, yes, this, I acknowledge this relationship in my life is not where I want it to be right now. It's not reconciled and it hurts. And also, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is working. He's doing things behind the scenes As I pray for that other person and maybe many people that that I just can't see yet. And so, God, I'm choosing to hope in your character. I'm choosing to hope in your promises. I'm choosing to hope in that unseen work. Even as I acknowledge this is really hard right now. And there's a beauty to doing this, family, where we're like, this hurts, but also this is true. By the way, this is the pattern, um, like my favorite I don't know if this is like I'm a glutton for punishment, but my, my, my like, favorite chapter of the Bible is like Lamentations 3. And maybe some of you resonate with that because you already know what it says. Do you know, So it's the prophet Jeremiah, I mean, imagine writing a book, Lamentations, okay? It's like, I wrote a book entitled Weeping Loudly for a Very Long Time. You should read it, okay? So 20 verses of him just pouring out complaint. God, I'm despondent. It feels like I'm eating gravel. It feels like I'm getting nothing good from your hand. I feel completely out of control, helpless, angry, frustrated. Where in the world are you? And by the way, if you you don't think that you can talk to God a certain way in faith, but just pour out your heart and say, this is how I feel right now. Read the first 20 verses of Lamentations. Anger, frustration, despair, complaint after complaint after complaint, and then he says this, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And do you hear what Jeremiah's doing? He's doing application point two. He's holding the pain and the hope together. He, he's not doing this Pollyannish optimistic thing or just blindly going through life and saying, nothing hurts, everything's great. Do you know the gospel gives you resources to cry out to your savior and say, this hurts. This is excruciating. I'm exhausted but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Learn to do that, family. Thirdly, fix your hope on God, not on your plans for God. I think this is a simple point, but practical one. A lot of times when I'm frustrated with God, I realize I had my plans. This is how it's going to go. This is what it's going to look like. And then I pray a lot. God, I need you to do your thing, to make my plans come to fruition, P.S., thanks in advance. And then God doesn't do my plans and I feel hopeless. If you're honest with yourself, you could take a big step back from some of your hopelessness or some of your frustration with God and just be like, did, did you break your word? No. Did you go back on your character? No. Is there a broken promise here? No. Why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? Because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And if you're honest, you could say, I I guess, Lord, I was just using you as a means to an end. What I really wanted was not you. What I wanted was the end I wanted. I wanted the outcome, to put it a different way. I'm praying for outcomes, not praying for surrender. Well, you'll be a lot less hopeless and a lot more hopeful If you entrust your story to God, and it's okay to pray for specific outcomes, don't get me wrong, but then as God is doing something else, don't just be like, I'm so mad at you. Be like, wait, wait, my hope is in God. My hope is not in the outcome I wanted from God. Help me to believe that, Lord. And then finally, have a strategy to fight for hope. If you're prone to hopelessness or if you're going through a season of hopelessness or if you're about to because we turn the page to a new year and you set some new stuff up that like it's going to be better this year and then you hit Leviticus in your Bible reading or whatever else is going on, you're just like, ah, it's not that great. It's not better or I already fell off the wagon or I'm not dropping weight and putting on just beautiful rippling muscles as I thought I would at 47. I don't know what's going on here, God. Like it just, it's like, you need a strategy. You can plan in advance and just say, when that hopelessness hits, not if, but when it hits, what's my plan? And I mean, things like, what verses are you going to meditate on? And the reason I know Lamentations 3, 21 through 24, the way I do is because I meditate on them a lot. But this I call to mind, be great to have, you, 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 I, sh- I share some of my life verses with you. You're welcome to add them yourself. Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. But have texts like that, stories like that from scripture, from God's word, promises from God's word that encourage you, that, that reorient your mind around the bigger thing that's true that you're not seeing. What scripture should you read? What, what kinds of prayers should you be praying? And again, I don't think this is weird that sometimes I write them out and say, when I start to go here, this is what I'm going to pray. I'm not going to follow my heart. I'm going to lead my heart. I'm going to pray certain things and command my heart to hope in God. By the way, that's what's happening in a lot of the Psalms. When the psalmist is like, hope in God, imperative. That's what he's doing. He's commanding his heart. So it's not just like, I'm a victim of my own feelings. I can't control it. He's like, well, obviously you can. You can command yourself to hope. So command yourself to hope. Set up a plan, okay? What what should you discipline your mind to think about? Who should you spend time with? Who should you not spend time with? What should you put in your body? And what should you not put in your... I'm just trying to be practical of saying like, what is my strategy for when I start to feel hopelessness? How will I preach the gospel to myself? Who am I going to surround myself with so that they preach the gospel to me? I mean, a couple of my friends, I just like, sometimes I say like, hey, I'm struggling with this right now. And even like writing it out to them or picking up the phone and calling them and saying, this is what I'm struggling with. And, and one of them, like, bless his heart. Like he almost never offers advice. He just says, well, if someone picked up the phone and called you and told you that, what would your advice to them be? Bye, you know, and it's not that, it's not that ruthless, But that is preaching the gospel to yourself. And I'm thankful for that. That's why I'm sharing that. You need that friend who's like, you know God's word. Someone comes to you that you care deeply about that's, that's fighting right now and struggling right now and about to give up right now. What would you say to them? So have your plan, have your strategy to hope in God. And family, and all of this, I wanna remind you, these are not just pie in the sky themes of like, I want more hope this year, I want more hope this season hope is a person. Peace is a person. Joy is a person. Love is a person. And he came, and he's coming again. So hope can be born alive in you today. Put your confidence in Jesus. Put your confidence in Jesus.